I promised some people last night about 2.30 that I was going to start with Black Sabbath this morning. <laughs> this, why don't you lift that up a little bit? But this is m more how I feel this morning. So. <laughs> it was a, a great theory I had. Um, but that's the way it goes sometimes. Wake up and it kind of go away. We saw a group called Clam Sabbath. Are they famous around here? They should be. <laughs> I saw this guy, they were playing Black Sabbath, and I was like, oh, that's religious music. Because they were wearing, uh, like, monk robes. And he was having, like, an ecstatic experience on stage. And that, that sounds an awful lot like uh, Shura, a, a, a recording I have of a Talib, a Taliban guy singing the Quran in Pakistan. I thought, is that possible? The, the Shura and the Madrasa on the Afghan-Pakistan border is, is the same as Black Sabbath? But it made sense last night. Well, I'm not going to subject you guys to it until I... Maybe next year I'll do that one. But this is a girl in India that um, re recorded my first job, first real job in radio as a sound engineer in 1986. And I just think she has a really beautiful voice. Um, how many people were at the one yesterday where I spoke? Nobody? All right, good. So I won't be repeating myself then. Um, The, Joanna asked me to talk about um, being in the moment or the sensation when you're listening to the radio. The, uh, it's like a suspension of disbelief in film where you forget where you are and you think that you're actually in the story. And um, I wanted to start off by playing a, a clip from a movie that maybe about half of you have seen. How many people have seen the film Dead Man? with Johnny Depp. Okay, not that many. That's is yesterday. So um, it's a really good soundtrack. I've used the soundtrack in a lot of different stories of mine. I just kind of rip off the music and lay it in underneath. But this is a scene uh, from the film. If, you, if you've seen the film, it will work because you'll remember the film. But if you haven't seen the film, it won't work at all. It's, you'll see. stones beneath the earth spoken through the fire what things which are alike in nature grow to look alike and the speaking stones have lain a long time looking at the sun Some believe they descend with the lightning, but I believe they are on the ground and are projected downward by the bolt. Did you kill the white man who killed you? 
white man's trick. No, I'm William Blake. And you are a dead man. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't understand. Is your name really William Blake? Understand, William Blake. You were a poet and a painter. And now you are a killer of white men. Yeah, so that was uh, Johnny Depp and Gary Farmer. Uh, Gary Farmer and his characters, an Indian named Nobody, and Johnny Depp's William Blake. He he's dead, but he doesn't know it. Anyway. Uh, the sound in that's not really good and for some reason they mixed in a pickup truck because oh, right, there's no pickup truck in the movie <laughs> I, think, I think that's Neil Young's pickup truck actually he wanted because he does the, the music I, I, but I had no idea Jim Jarmusch directed it but anyway I wanted to play that because um, in radio I, I think that the way you uh, suspend someone's disbelief or get them to imagine that they're actually there is you present, first of all, really good sound recording, a rich sound recording, definitely helps anyway. But then you set it up before you play it, before they hear it, uh, by introducing images that they can work on in their own, in their own imaginations. Um, because once you engage somebody's imagination, whether it's in print or in audio, you kind of have them. The um, you know, human beings, uh, we've been telling stories for a million years at least, and uh, most people are ready and willing to start imagining something if you plant the seeds. and. I think that's really all there is to it. I mean, I don't want to make it oversimplistic, but I, I think it boils down to uh, getting a good recording and then setting it up with images. And because uh, if you haven't seen that film, you don't have any images in your head. You don't know what's going on. It doesn't work. And it's the same way with radio. It, uh, when people play tape or when they talk about things, but there's no images with it, I often really can't understand what they say or I don't really care. But when they get my imagination engaged, then I'm, I'm, I'm with them completely. So what I want to do is play some stories, some edited, uh, some excerpts from stories I've done over the years where I started by recording tape, basically just 
most of the time what I do is I just travel around, drive around, and talk to people at random. Um, even when I, not always, sometimes I know people I want to go talk to, but usually I start by just collecting the tape. And uh, then I decide, okay, I've got this tape, I'm going to edit it down, I'm going to just pull out the good stuff, but then how do I set it up? How do I introduce it so the audience has a feeling of, of being there? And so this is uh, a story I did in, I think, 88, 1988, about the West Desert. We call it the West Desert. I'm from Salt Lake City. And just west of the city is this big, huge uh, desert. It's probably about as big as, it's bigger than the state of Connecticut. Um, and it's the remnant of an in, inland sea. There was once a lake that covered mo most of Utah and Nevada. It was a thousand feet deep. Um, and what's left is the Great Salt Lake now and the Bonneville Salt Flats. And so I, what I want to do is uh, like a cultural history of this area. And so this is how it starts out. On the salt flats, every shot is the same. The ball sits on a stiff white carpet of salt crystals. So you tee it up and hit the driver. The ball flies off toward the mountain and then drops and disappears into the lake. It looks like the shore of the Great Salt Lake but it's a mirage. You walk toward the shot, and the shoreline stays 100 yards in front of you. The ball is always there, sitting on a stiff white carpet of salt crystals, so you tee it up and hit the driver. And so on for miles and miles and miles. The mountain in the distance is called Floating Island. Up high there are animals, trees, and fish. But down here, nothing. No rocks or bushes, no ditches. There are no real hazards, except for the bombing range, which is big but easy to avoid, and the mental hazard of being spooked by the emptiness. It can make you feel uncomfortable, but then it can also improve your concentration on the ball. It's obvious no one would live out here, and yet, People do live out here. This is Granite Ranch. I'm Keith Allred. Um, where, um, I guess the, the original name given to the, the people believing polygamy would be fundamentalist, but um, socially, if that was practiced and practiced in a godly manner, not after lust or to benefit man's desires or stuff like that, you wouldn't have harlotism, you wouldn't have uh, abortions, you wouldn't have society in the way you have it today in a whoremonging type uh, lustful society. And it takes care of the widow, the orphan, it takes care of an unmarried woman, it, it, it gives a woman an opportunity that she can choose a good man not setting up any man that he's he's a better than another man or something like that, but it sets it up that uh, a woman can have a righteous head or a righteous leader. And I think if you would look through the world today, they're far and few. I mean, if you just use the ten boy scout rules, most men come far from reaching that. 
The first white men came to this desert in the 1820s looking for beaver and the Rio Buenaventura, the river they thought connected the Great Salt Lake with the Pacific Ocean. They came in young, on horseback. A few weeks later, they staggered out, having eaten their horses, having abandoned their friends, having forgotten their own names. Their reports were full of horrors. There are no beaver, there is no river, everywhere the water just disappears into the ground. The Indians live like animals, their houses nothing more than hovels made from little sticks, their clothes made from the same sticks, food, whatever they pick up off the ground, insects, lizards, rats, like dogs they hunt without weapons, they're all witches, they can charm animals into their camp by beating a drum and dancing. Captain Howard Stansberry of the U.S. Corps of Topographical Engineers, the first white man to walk around the Great Salt Lake, said, These Indians are the most degraded savages, and their country is entirely worthless. You know what that means? Yeah, I think you said I'm Mitch and we're standing behind the store and this is my brother. No, Matt. I said oh. waiting for the waiting, waiting for the mail oh, to yeah. come in. Why white people don't not even yeah, hurry? White people said. don't hurry up, I said. <laughs> <laughs> and here the mail's already here. So what are you gonna do this afternoon? I'm going to Windows this afternoon. Gotta cash his check and got some big tits I wanna go see to. Dancers? No, Dolly no. Parton. <laughs> Girlfriend. You know Dolly Parton, don't you? I don't. I don't know. Is she in Wendover? Mm-hmm. Second Dolly Parton. So do you guys gamble? Oh, yeah, bet. What do you mean, bad? You bet, I said. You bet? or it's... We play blackjack. Uh, and do you win or do you lose? Black. Lose every time, just like donating money. <laughs> well, why do you do it, then? Why? What's your why? Yeah. Because we got the money and we just want to go have fun. You don't care as long as I fill up my gas tank and I end up making back home. What it, you don't care if you save your money? That I can't answer. I don't know about that. <laughs> oh, what do you mean? You don't know about it. Well, <clears throat> we I'll some. tell you one thing. We go down the window just to have fun, see? If not, we just stick around here. What do you do for fun around here? Mm. Look for a few, looking for some women's, but there's nothing around here. All these girls are related to us around here, so we have to go all the way to Windover, or if not Windover, we go all the way to Wells, or Donna's, Donna's Hacienda. You never talk to any uh, Indians up, uh, up above? Hey, hey Scott, I'm going to go over to the store. I'm going to take him over so he, he can cash his check, then I'll come okay. back over, huh? All right, Because okay. I don't know, you might have to give us a jump because my truck, Gonna act you up. All right. See what happens. No, 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 no I'm waiting for you. No, no, no. In 1941 and 42, the Army and the Air Force took more than 2,000 square miles of this desert for bombing ranges and work with biological and chemical warfare. And the land changed, not just the 2,000 square miles, the whole desert. It changed from being considered worthless to being considered to have value in its worthlessness.
It offered open space and absolute silence. What better place to drop bombs and spread disease and poison? At the Dugway Proving Grounds in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, Army and CIA personnel tested aerial and ground dispersions of nerve agent, dangerous viruses, the microbes that cause anthrax, plague, as well as the hallucinogens LSD and BZ. You may remember the nerve gas accident in 1968 that killed 6,000 sheep. By some estimates, one-third of Dugway's 1,000 square miles is contaminated and will be off-limits forever. All the tests are now done indoors under very anxious safety regulations. This is a class three glove box. Remember there were three types of safety cabinets. This is the highest level and it's a, you can see there are glove ports. It's totally sealed up when it's in operation and they test it with Freon to make sure there's no leaks. This is where we do our aerosol work inside of here. So there are three layers of containment. The room is a layer of containment. The chamber is a layer of containment, and then the aerosol itself is actually inside that aerosol system inside the Class Three glove box. Inside of what? This plexiglass box, that's where the aerosol is contained. Can you run through for me? Uh, Yersinia pestis attenuated strain, Coxiella urbanetti, which causes Q fever, Bacillus subtilis variety niger, which is a simulant, MS2 colophage, which is a viral simulant that doesn't cause disease, Botulinum toxin, which causes uh, botulism. Staphylococcus enterotoxin B, which causes the food poisoning that's common from eating potato salad that's been left at room temperature. And T2 toxin. I think I got them all yellow now. Yellow fever? Is that one? No. I didn't say yellow fever. Is there yellow fever here? I, I don't believe so. You don't believe so? No, I don't believe so. Cholera? The is real cholera? cholera? Yeah, these are cholera a, here. How do you mean here? Is there do we have samples of cholera in the building? Uh, That's correct. Well, how about uh, anthrax? Bacillus anthracis? Yes. It's an organism that causes a serious illness. And there is treatment. There is a vaccine for it, which appears to be very effective. And there is treatment for anthrax. But once again, we use attenuated strains when we can. And we actually have a very good simulant for anthrax. So, so we don't use anthrax all that often. So there's treatment for anthrax? Mm hmm So what you're saying is it's safe and the public shouldn't worry? I'd recommend that you come to the Citizens Advisory Committee for Dugway testing meetings. And there is no treatment for anthrax. I just want to don't go um, getting any anthrax because there's no... <laughs> it's, it, if you inject something immediately, I guess it works. But um, anyway, uh, that story was scheduled to play th on three different times on All Things Considered, but it didn't run. But Ira Glass and Gary Covino played it here in the Wild Room. Uh, it was a show they used to have at WBEZ. But it never aired nationally, I think, because that guy, Dr. Gary Resnick, uh, he called the Pentagon and called someone in Congress who called Bill Busenberg at NPR and complained. And I know that because Bill Busenberg told me so. But anyway, um, so Johanna suggested I take questions between the stories. Do you have any questions at all? 
yeah. Why did you, or how did you decide to set up the story with you hitting the golf ball? Okay, um, well, I grew up in Utah, Salt Lake, and one thing I've noticed about uh, people who aren't, aren't from the West is that they have a hard time uh, seeing or uh, seeing the space. Like it's hard to see a mountain unless you're around them a lot. How high it is, how far away it is, um, and the same is with desert. The open spaces. If you're not from that that area. If you're used to a more, more urban landscape or where there are trees everywhere, like I get around a bunch of trees and it just creeps me out because I can't. Like, how can you live here? You can't see more than 50 feet. But out there, uh, like right after that part, uh, I, there's a part where I, I'm on the top of this mountain and describing the view, and you can see for 100 miles, really, literally 100 miles in every direction. And so it was a way to try to give the listeners some sense of this open space. And I thought, oh, hitting a golf ball, that'll work. Because you can hear the... So I just went out there with my driver and just started hitting balls and like that. That's how the idea came. Yeah. You said you used to go out and sort of talk to people at random. Yeah. Was this real? That, that Resnick wasn't random. I called uh, and waited six weeks, and they kept putting me off the Dugway Proving Ground. And during that time, I studied up really well on biological and chemical warfare. And uh, I think I knew a bit more than he was used to, people coming out there. And he kept saying, I don't, I, you know, I was asking what, what they have there, because their containment only a class three and they have uh, agents and chemicals out there that are really supposed to be class four, which is Fort Detrick in Maryland. And um, he kept saying, I don't recall, I don't remember. And I finally said, you know, when people say they don't remember, it means they don't want to tell the truth. And he said, you see this gentleman behind you? It's Colonel so-and-so, and he will escort you off the base. So I was escorted off the base. But... Um, Sometimes, yeah, I knew I was going to talk to him. I didn't know it was Gary Resnick, but um, until I got there. But with the piece when you were going out, and yeah. did you know you were going to be working up to that point through all of these other things? Yeah, there's a number of places out there where I went and interviewed people. Um, there's a nuclear waste storage facility out there as well, and um, a place where they make magnesium by pulling magnesium chloride out of the, it's a salt in the Great Salt Lake and they separate the chloride or chlorine from the magnesium and the chlorine just goes into the air, which is like mustard gas. That's what they used in World War I. Um, so yeah, I had some places, but the Indians I just met at random, the Goshutes um, and different people. Um, I have to be lucky, I think, a lot of times. That's the answer to that. I, I depend on luck a lot. And if sometimes I'm not lucky, I don't get any good tape. Yeah. Are you okay with that? No. It's like, <laughs> it's like what did I do wrong? Why, why, why am I not living right? Why, is it, why, why isn't someone coming up and saying something I've never heard before? Yeah. Scott, uh, in the conversation with the Indian guys, 
Um, your, your stuff often has this kind of real-time, laconic pacing to it. Uh -huh. And my question is, how manipulated is that in time? Are you, how compressed? That one? I don't think that one is at all. But this next one I was going to play, uh, I did space it out. Uh, and I edited it over and over and over again. It was a, you know, back on quarter-inch tape. And I remember watching that tape go through when I finished it. And it was just like it had hundreds of edits in it. Little, you know, spaces like that. Edit, edit, edit. Because I was just trying to get the pacing right. Let me play, I'll play that one. This one is um, called The Neighborhood. And uh, I got the idea from looking at a photo essay book called Suburbia by Bill Owens. Has anybody ever seen that? Yeah, it's kind of a famous photo essay book. And the movie Edward Scissorhands, maybe some of you have seen that. The sets in that film are taken from Bill Owens' Suburbia. Um, anyway, what he did is he took pictures of his neighbors in suburbia, in suburban Sacramento, I believe. And uh, kind of with, with a wide-angle lens, and so they're a little bit distorted. Uh, but he took pictures of them in their favorite room in the house or in the garage. And then he put a quote with the photo from them, something that they said to him. And so I thought, oh, I could do that as a radio. That would be a good idea for a radio story where you just have an interview with neighbors or people in Salt Lake City. And, uh, you know, then separated by a doorbell or a sound effect or something. So it'd be like turning a page, interview, interview, like that. And so, but then that's basically what the uh, piece was, the program was. But uh, in the middle, I thought, I need some narration somewhere in here just to remind people or pull people back or to give them an idea of what's going on. So this starts with, uh, it, like in the middle of the story with, what I think of as narration, and then has, I think, two people followed that. I live around the corner. What, who are you? My name's Scott Carrier, and I live around the around the corner down there in G Street. You don't live around the corner here. I know just about everybody that lives on this block. No, I, I do. I live down there. I live down there. Where do you say you live? Around the corner down there. Down where? Down. I live. I live down on G Street down there. G Street? Yeah. G Street and what? About Ninth Avenue. Well, what, what are you doing up in that tree? 
What? You're acting like a damn fool. Now come on down. That, that's, that's over 20, 20, 30 feet high. If you fall down, God knows what, I'm responsible and it'd be a hell of a mess. Now come on down. Just let me stay up here a little bit longer. I'm no, almost I'm done. I'm not going to let you stay up there one more minute. And, and uh, if, if I could, I'd climb up and, and take you down by the seat of the pants. Uh, this Good is... Lord, you can't even have a tree on your property anymore for fear that, that a, a fool like yourself is going to climb up it and fall off. Come on down. I, I, are you going to force me to call the, uh, the cops? <laughs> My name is George Nay, N-A-Y, but I belong to the Full Gospel Businessmen Fellowship International. And uh, at 16 years old is when I found the Lord as my personal Savior, was baptized with the Holy Ghost and spoke two hours in the Spanish language uh, uh, that I had never learned. Just a camp meeting we had here at Parowan this fall, er, in July, it was around the 4th of July, the camp meeting. One night, 150 people received fillings in their teeth the Lord put in. It saved my granddaughter. She was one of them. It saved us over $1,000. We'd have to pay for dental work. Now, a doctor can cut you and he can sew you up. He can do a lot of wonderful things, but he cannot heal you. There's only one healer. And a dentist can fix your teeth, but that's no sign that they're not going bad again. But Jesus can fix them to where they just, my wife's had one for over 22 years, a uh, beautiful filling the Lord put in gold. And the Lord puts in gold, he puts in silver, and he makes teeth white also. So Jesus makes the difference. We just love every one of you and appreciate you. The Lord bless you. You want me to read my poem to W.S. Merwin? Let me see it. Let me see if that's one. This is the one to Merwin. I gave him an answer. I, I said, dead hands, dead hands, ha ha. You may talk about the basilisk, Merwin. I'll tell you about dead hands. It's got nothing to do with letting... People don't know who, so they won't Let the rings fall. Dead hands, dead hands. I know dead hands. But I stare like the basilisk at these two lines of Merwin's, and yet I know dead hands. Once warm, caressing my silk, my skin before they turned to wax in the casket with veins vanished after life's red was sucked away in that hushed morgue. Dear God, do they run that blood down the drain? We are not going to go on with this, Scott. That's not, I'm not going to finish that. There's a simple little poem in here. There's a simple little poem that isn't so bloody. Y'all. No, I'm not talking to you. Go it away. Might be, it might be. I don't give a damn. It's not. We don't, we're not talking to them. Okay. We don't have to. Just because that phone rings, why should a person have to talk to a phone? Someone terrible, I know it is. I know that it is someone terrible. 
No, that's why I know it's someone terrible. It isn't father, it isn't family, it isn't girlfriends, it is someone terrible. I'm not getting it. That means it's a man. Stop it. I'll unplug you. You have been listening to The Neighborhood. This program was produced by Scott Carrier with funds provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's Satellite Program Development Fund. Does anybody remember it the, was sat the Satellite Program Development Fund? All right. There was one yesterday, too. <laughs> they used to give out money. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting actually used to give money to independent producers. There was a guy yesterday at lunch. I think he should run for Senate or governor because he was 95% bullshit talking about the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, wanting to give us money. They don't do it anymore, really. Anyway, um, any questions about that? That I, I was listening if I spaced anything out there, and I don't think there's anything. But I do remember m worrying a lot about the timing in that story, the pacing of people talking. And I know there were places where I added time. And listening to it years later, I thought, oh, there's, there's too much time in there. Yeah. Excuse me. Did yeah. you comment on the segment with, uh, between the gentleman on the ground and, I guess it was you and his friend? Yeah. How did you capture the audio of him on the ground? It sounded... I climbed a tree, and he came up and started yelling at me. But did you lower your mic down? And oh. Did you lower it up, or what? I can't remember. What, like what? I mean... No, I'm just saying to, to capture that... Clarity of his voice because we could hear him very distinctly. Yeah. I mean, we could hear him from a yeah. distance from you, but and then we could hear you were very close. Yeah. Very My neighborhood's not very loud. It's just. So you just had the microphone in your hand, or did you extend it out, or did you drop it down at all? Uh, I, yeah, that's a good question, but I don't remember. That's my friend. That's my best friend screwing around. <laughs> 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 Uh, yeah. Well, so that, was <laughs> that was staged. Yeah. Um, because in this story, as you heard from the, it's kind of a, you know, I have some strange neighbors. Everybody does when you get to know them. And um, I mean, I've always told the truth about that. I've never, if people ask, I say, no, that's my best friend. I mean, it's real. I was up in a tree and he was yelling at me. I didn't tell him what to say or anything, but he just, He's just a really funny guy. So he <laughs> And uh, I just think it was appropriate in that context for that story is no big deal. But I don't, like I didn't, I don't stage things other places other than every story is somewhat, every story is constructed, you know. There's the real thing that happens. Reality doesn't come with a beginning, middle, and end. It just happens. And we, when we make stories, we have to reconstruct, you know, the events as we saw it or whatever. So, but I don't really want it. That's not the subject of my talk. What is the subject of my talk? Oh, yeah, all right. Being in the moment. Um, any other questions about that? Yes. Uh, there's so much emphasis on, on uh 
narrative arc and building conflict and things like that. Uh, you seem like you sometimes don't. I mean, your your stories certainly have a beginning, middle, and end in some sense, but not in the sense of like a the way we might think of like a This American Life story or something. Right. You know? Like how? What? What's your thinking on that? How have you avoided like sort of falling into that 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 uh, formula? Um. Well, I think that story should have a beginning, middle, and end. Um, but it doesn't always have to be the same. It doesn't have to. Um, you know. I kind of my stories usually do have a beginning, middle, and end, uh, but they're not as uh, I. You know, I started off by interviewing people and just wanting to play the tape of the sounds and the people I talked to. And I was forced to write narration because um, Alex Chadwick told me the first story. I mean, I showed up at NPR in Washington with some interviews I'd recorded hitchhiking from Salt Lake City to Washington, D.C. And I, I told him, I, and I just want, I want this to be like cinema verite, no narration. And he said, it won't work. Unless you uh, supply context, there's no meaning, or something like that. Basically, he was saying, there's, if there, the meaning is in the context, and you have to tell the listener you know, what the, this is about your story, leaving your home and coming here. And unless you tell them that, they won't know what these people are about or how they make sense or anything. So, uh, I mean, I, I learned to... Um, build a story around a beginning, middle, and end, I guess, from the beginning. Um, I don't really know. I don't. I can't really think about how my stories are different than the stories on This American Life, although I've done a number of stories for This American Life. But I, Ira and I started about the same time, actually, doing stories for MP, working for NPR as independent. I was an independent. I don't know. I that's too much of a question right now this morning for me. <laughs> yeah. So you've mentioned you started with film and you mentioned cinema verite. Yeah. A lot of us sort of want to want to sonically do something that's close to cinema verite. Do you think it's impossible in radio? No, the Kitchen Sisters do it really well. They they never narrate their stories. And that, that's how, that's why listening to their stories that Alex Chadwick played on Weekend All Things Considered back in the early 80s, that's what made me think that I could do radio. Because I was in, I was studying, uh, in, uh, studying film, anthropo anthropological film. And as, but I heard some of their stories, I thought, oh, I have a tape recorder and a microphone. I can do that. And I don't, because film was so expensive back then. So, yeah, it, stories without narration are they're more difficult to make them work, I think. But um, I like them when I hear them. I think it's Kitchen Sisters do it really well. Who else does it really well? Anybody? No? Long Haul Productions. Long Haul Productions. Um, Dan and Elizabeth. Yeah, that story about the great god bird. That was a really good one. That's a nice one. Um, 
Dan Carlson and Elizabeth Meister. The last, that first story that I played, or the West Desert story, I said it was up on the board three times at All Things Considered. Last time, it was Dan Collison was going to play it on weekend, All Things Considered, and Lynn Neary refused to introduce it because of, she thought the, the part with the ghost shoots was an insult to Native Americans. And so Dan Collison quit. He used to be a producer. We, it was the last straw. It wasn't just over that, but he just blew a fuse and quit. When was that? 1988, I think. I think it pains him to be reminded. I saw him at a thing in California. I sort of laughed about it. Not really. <laughs> 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 um, all right, let's see. Here's another one that uh, people like. And I, uh, Johanna asked me to play it. It's pretty much self-explanatory. It was noon, and I was in the Green River Bar in Daniel, Wyoming. I was the only customer. I'd been floating down the Green River in a canoe, but the wind started blowing so hard, I was just getting pinned against the shore. I saw this town, Daniel, and figured I'd hole up until the wind died down. The bartender was an older woman. She was washing glasses left over from the night before. A German shepherd lay asleep on the concrete floor. On the mirror behind the bar were photos of the woman throwing a frisbee to the dog. To make conversation, I said, I see your dog likes to catch the frisbee. She said, he sure does, don't you, Fritz? You love playing catch. Fritz picked his head up off the floor and looked at her. I used to know a shepherd that was crazy about the frisbee, I said, but his hips went bad and he had to stop. Broke his heart. Fritz has good hips, she said but he had an eye disease called panis that attacks the corneas. It got worse and worse, and finally we had to have his eyeballs removed. He's blind? He doesn't have any eyes, she said, so yes, he's blind. I walked over to Fritz and he looked up at me, and the skin on his forehead had been sewn shut over empty eye sockets. I rubbed his head and the skin slid over the holes. He must miss catching the frisbee, I said. No, she said, smiling. He still plays catch. Those photos were taken after his operation. I didn't believe it, so she offered to show me. Well, I'm Pat Walker, and we're in Daniel, Wyoming, which is, oh, 60-some miles south of Jackson to locate it geographically. And her population sign says 110, but I believe the last time I counted right here in greater downtown Daniel, we have about 28. We're in our front yard, but it doesn't matter where we might be, because this dog likes to play with his frisbee. <laughs> yes, you love showing off, don't you? Good dog. The way they did it was Fritz would run in a circle about 10 feet in diameter, and Pat stood back about another 10 feet, and when Fritz came around, she'd throw it. Fritz would jump up and try to catch it. Good dog. Sometimes he'd catch it, sometimes he didn't. Oop, my fault. Even though it was choreographed, Pat didn't always throw it at the same time, she didn't always throw it in the same place. Okay. Good dog. It was amazing. This is the way he always played. See, this is how he played when he was sighted. And then I could look back, but it wasn't awfully long until he finally caught it once. He wanted us to do it. And, we, of course, he'd miss and miss and miss. But he didn't get tired of it. And so we just kept going until he 
caught it. And like I say, if I've been good at it, why well, I've had him catch it up to 50 times without missing. His life is very full. He does everything he did before. A little slower, maybe. And he takes some bad knocks, but not too many anymore. So how do you, how do you think he does it? How does he know? He hears, because see, like when that car came by, uh-huh. then he blows it. Huh. Good job. Come to me. Yeah, can you calm down now? Why don't you lie down for a minute? No, lie down. Fritz, down. Lie down just for a minute. Here, lie down. Come on. What's it like living here? Out here? Wonderful. Here by choice. And besides this wonderfully beautiful country. Why? I've always said I didn't know whether I loved the people or the country most. Pretty special. And While Pat was talking to me, she wasn't throwing the Frisbee, and Fritz was getting impatient. He was standing there between us, and I was holding the microphone up to Pat, and suddenly he jumped up and bit down on the end of the microphone. Oh, Fritz, easy! He thought the microphone was the Frisbee. I don't know how else to explain it. And even then, I can't explain how he knew to bite that spot. Microphones don't make sound. They record sound, although it never worked very well after that. A dent in the metal screen. Now it sits on my bookshelf with a thousand-year-old arrowhead, a photo of an Eskimo in a kayak, and some rocks from Yellowstone Lake. Sometimes I show it to people. See this dent? It was made by the tooth of a blind German shepherd who thought it was a frisbee. That was on day to day. Oh, thanks. I like that one. That was on day to day, I think, uh, right when they started. Um, uh, when was that? 2004, maybe? I don't know. I recorded it in 88 for a, a show on the Green. I floated down the Green River in different uh, patches of the river, stretches of the river. I don't know why I didn't use that in the story, but I just, I thought, I don't know why I didn't put it in, but then years later, but by the time I actually did the story, I called Pat Walker back and told her it was going to be on the air, and she said, oh, you know, Fritz died. He he already died, but he was a famous dog in that area at that time. I didn't know it, I mean, but um, yeah, he was famous. It was amazing. He could really catch a frisbee without any eyeballs. Um, I didn't play this one yesterday, but for I some reason I want to resign myself. No lie. Right. They don't want Nevada's history. I just like now. Marked with Goric that. I just like now. Um, this is another one from out in the desert. This, um, uh, the Basin and Range. Did, when the first Gulf War, when it started, I was just really upset. I thought it was a really bad idea. And it was a winter, it was like November, I believe, or something like that. And I just went out to Nevada to ski um, different mountains out there. I thought, I just got to get out of here. So I'm going to go ski different. There's like 100 different ranges in Nevada, 100 different mountain ranges and 150 different basins. and. So I went out there and just drove around and went skiing and um, and interviewed people that I met along the way. And everywhere I went, it, like people were just really upset and violent everywhere. And I thought it was kind of a some type of reflection about our country and the war. And um, 
But I like this. Uh, I'll play just a little bit of it, and then you can ask ask questions a little bit after it's done. This guy offered to give me his gold mine. Let's see, where is it? Is it going? Nevada is pockmarked with ghost towns. You see signs on the highway that say historic this and historic that. And what they mean is that in the 1850s or in the 1890s, 10,000 white men lived there for three years and then vanished. This is Nevada's history. Boom and bust, a million holes in the ground. Solitary miners out wandering around the desert looking to get rich, or just out looking because they don't want or know how to do anything else. I met one one day, an old timer. I was trying to find a way up to Granite Peak in the Wasuck Range. I drove up his road and stopped at his trailer. His name was Harry Nyleen, and he must have been close to 80 years old. If it hadn't been for greedy persons, greedy ones, why, I would be a multimillionaire, and that's no lie. Right up here, there's at least $20 billion worth of gold alone, just the gold values in, in this property. I've had this property on just about on the verge of going into production, and uh, some greedy person had throw the monkey wrench in it uh, just to get, get it for themselves. And if they wouldn't have been so greedy, they would have made millions. Well, I don't understand. I mean, if someone comes along and says, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll buy you out of this mine, well, I'll give you the money, why don't you take them up? What, what's, why don't you say, this is my uh, price and uh, you I, can have it? I'm, I'm past that age of being able to sell it for this reason. They look at me and they say, oh, well, we just wait a while, he's gonna die and we'll tell it for nothing. Huh. Is that true? They will have it for nothing? That's the way the big companies are. Do you think if your health was better, you could make a lot of money here? Huh? You, do you think if your health was better, you could make well, a lot of money? It's beyond me as far as that goes. I'm just waiting for some young person that comes along that, uh, that uh, believes in the United States. And, and turn it over to him. Really? Yeah. You'd sell it or just give it? I'll to just him? give it to him. Really? Why, sure. Here's a man you'll hear about most every place you go. Never was much bothered by the process of the law. I hired out the Diamond Joe boys. I did offer him my hand. Give me a string of horses. Start the death bar. He 
he did mistreat me so Never saved a dollar in a paved diamond door Well, I tried three times to quit him, boy But he did argue so That I'm still punching cattle in the pay of Diamond Joe And when I'm called up yonder And it comes my time Give my blankets to my buddies And give the fleas to Diamond I tried for two days to get into the Jarbich Mountains, but it was just impossible. The roads weren't plowed, and my station wagon wouldn't make it. So I was on my way back south towards Elko. I came up over a hill and all of a sudden the highway was clogged with cars and trucks. All the people were up on the hillside. It was some kind of race. Snowmobiles were dragging canoes and boats up the hill, and then people would get into the boats and bomb down to the bottom. Okay, what the idea is, we got the annual, uh, first annual winter canoe race sponsored by the Bar Association out of Elko, Nevada here. And uh, we're just out to have a little fun and, and uh, represent the bars around here. We got uh, three classes. We got a canoe class, that's 40 inches wide in the regular canoe. And we got a yacht class, which is anything wider than the canoe. And we got an open class where they can run down on anything. A car hood was used and whatever they can make up on it. So, let me know when you're ready. Yeah. Ready? Yep. Okay, It was completely crazy. The course went straight down the hill. It was fairly steep, and there wasn't anywhere to stop at the bottom. It just ended in the ditch by the side of the road. Luckily, most of the canoes couldn't get any speed going, and they'd stop before they even made it halfway. But there was one small wooden skiff, painted red, white, and blue, named Desert Storm, that went down incredibly fast with five men inside the one in the stern trying to steer with sideboards. But he overcompensated, and the boat fishtailed back and forth and then flipped into the air, flinging the men out like marbles, and then it landed on a couple of them and broke into two pieces. The next boat down was a canoe that also quickly picked up a lot of speed, ran off the course, and headed straight towards four spectators. Three of them reacted quickly and jumped out of the way. But the fourth, a young woman, kind of froze, and the canoe caught her at her shins, tossed her into a high somersault, and I could see that her legs were like noodles. Both of them were broken, probably all four bones. The crowd just stood there eating hot dogs, like, well, who's next?
In Nevada, you can go pretty much wherever you want. 80% of the land is public domain, mostly BLM, Bureau of Land Management, some Forest Service, a little Park Service. But the sky, the airspace, belongs to the military. 70% is controlled by the Air Force and the Navy. Miners and ranchers I met told me that the jets were all over in the Gulf, but there were jets everywhere, flashing night flights over the garbage wilderness, flying low, going east up Squaw Valley to the Great Salt Lake Desert, playing tag and chase in the Monitor Basin, a six-plume contrail from a B-52, 20,000 feet over Walker Lake. I met a rancher, Cecil Garland, who lived just south of the Wendover bombing range. He said the war in the Gulf was giving him and his neighbors the first peace and quiet they'd had in years. For now, no more low-flying aircraft. And by low-flying, I mean uh, F-16s and F-whatever would come literally over our trees and just swoop down over our homes and our cattle, uh, and they'd be 150 feet above the ground. And this was frequent. And for many years, we... We got no relief from that, and they would, you know, use us for uh, radar targets when we were traveling our roads. They flew low over our schoolhouse. Uh, they would fly low over your tractor when you're working in your fields here. The human system is is not prepared to have a low-flying jet just simply fly over you. You go into shock for seconds. Your system does. And so uh, I'm, I'm repelled by the whole thing. I drove into Elko late on a Sunday night and parked by an alley off Main Street. I was looking down on the floor of the car for my wallet or something, and when I looked up again, there was a cop car behind me with its lights flashing. I looked around, and right next to my car, on the sidewalk, there was a big guy with a six-inch gash on his face and a long cut down his forearm. He was bleeding bad and swaying back and forth like he was about to go unconscious. And then I looked in front of him and there were two women walking away in separate directions, both crying, saying no, oh no. And then there was one other man, a really big guy, over six feet tall and at least 300 pounds, standing back by a pickup next to a brick wall. The cops got out of their car and came at him, both with pistols and flashlights, saying, drop it put it down, throw it down on the ground in front of you. He dropped something. I guess it was a small knife. The cop said, put your hands up over your head. Now, do it. But the guy put his arms out towards them and said, come on, come on, like he was going to fight. Then the police called him by name. They said, Jimmy, you don't understand. We've got guns. Now put your hands up. Now. And while this standoff was going on, the first guy... The bloody guy walked right in between them and staggered off down the alley with the cops shouting, Hold it! Stop right there! Don't go any farther! But he just kept walking, like he'd never heard a word. Elko has a population of 20,000 people. It has five stoplights. That's a lot for this part of Nevada. I went into the closest bar to have a beer, and it was jello wrestling night. Okay, are you ready for tonight's big tag team match? It's the best two out of three falls 
no time limit. Here's your current champions, all the way from the Big Apple, New York City. It's Charlie and Tuesday. Cheer for Charlie's Angels. A combined weight of 218 pounds. As far as Jello, Jello's um, basically it's a wrestling thing. You know, you just wrestle. And as far as oil goes, when I go on the road, or Jello, we do a dance routine first. We're, we're bidded. They bid for us to be our coaches, although they're not allowed to touch us. But we do. They we have coaches that, that sit there on the you know for so much money. They'll sit up there and they'll wipe us off and or spray us down, whichever it is. And I'm real damn proud of myself. I I bought me a, a seven bedroom five bath home, and I'm a very, I'm a single woman. And that's a hell of an accomplishment, you know, because most people don't think that that ever could happen. They all, they, we all depend on you men to take care of us. <laughs> but, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it, that's all it is. It's like, you know, it's about time I made something out of my life besides nothing. Wait a second, we need a ruling from the commissioner here. Girls, ladies, 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 wait a minute, one, two, I drove into Austin, a little town in the middle of the state. It was nighttime, and there was nothing open except a bar named The Bar. I went in, and there were three men playing pool with the woman bartender. I thought these men must be miners, because each of them was covered with dust. It took about three minutes before the woman came over and gave me a beer. Then one of the men came over, and I started to talk to him about the fishing around there. But he was telling me stories, and I could tell he didn't know what he was talking about. So I changed the subject to jets. I said, driving into town tonight, about 20 miles east of here, I was watching five or six fighter jets chase each other. You see a lot of them around here? And he said, yeah, every day, all day. They come in from all over the country. This town's one of their targets. I said, what's that like, being a target? He said, oh, I don't know. You get to where you appreciate it. I said, appreciate it? He said, yeah, you still got your freedom, don't you? I said, I don't know. He said, what? I said, I don't know. That's just what I was thinking about when I was watching the Jets. I don't know whether they make me more free or not. And this guy stood there leaning on his pool cue, looking me straight in the eye and said, the only person who'd say a thing like that is either against our boys over there or he's one of them crazy bastards. Then his friends called him over to shoot. He shot and came back and said, You ever been hit over the head with the butt of a rifle? You ever had a bayonet stabbed in your back? I said, I was just thinking that maybe our technology makes us more like slaves and that maybe you were a miner and would understand what I'm saying. He said, I'm for these people right here. 
I'm for this place, right here. I said, what do you mean? And he came up to me, put his face right up next to mine and said, you're gonna get your ass kicked and I'm gonna kick it and I'm gonna win. I looked back at him and said, you misunderstand my intentions. I didn't come in here to get into a fight and it doesn't matter to me that you can kick my ass. I was just trying to have a conversation. His friends called him back to shoot and he did. But after that he ignored me. They all ignored me. And after a while I left. Drove out of town thinking, why am I such a coward? Why didn't I stand up for what I was saying? I'd let myself become intimidated and I felt ashamed. So I turned around and went back into town, walked up to the door of the bar and stood there for a second thinking, okay, you go in there, it's not gonna be an argument. It's gonna be a fight and they all have pool cues and you're gonna get your face kicked in. And I thought, what the hell? I've got a right to get beat up for what I believe. So I went in, but they were all gone. There was just the bartender there talking to an older man. So, I haven't heard that one in a while, but um, that I liked producing that because of the music. And there was a Stevie Ray Vaughan song at the end, uh, during the bar. I didn't have my tape recorder in the bar. Or maybe I did. I probably did. But he didn't want to talk. So um, I created that. I went down to a bar in Salt Lake and recorded the pool table. And then recorded the Stevie Ray Vaughan song in an empty room. Just, you know, recorded a plane over speakers in a room so it sounded like it was in a bar. And then, um, yeah, it looks like the way, sometimes when you're working on stories, things just work out. And the way that came up, the way I was able to pull up the song out of the Jello wrestling was that was just fun. I remember thinking, I was like, oh, that's really fun. And then um, that gold miner in the beginning, um, the song that came after it was Ramblin' Jack Elliott, and he was playing in Elko uh, when I went through um, another, the same trip, but a, not the same as the Jello wrestling. But R- Ramblin' Jack, he was amazing. I just I'd never heard of him. I didn't know who he was. And I saw him on stage and he just blew me away. And a friend of mine was recording. It was at the Cowboy Poetry Festival that year. So I just, I really, I don't know if other people like it, but I just, I love that song. So I put it in there. Yeah. All I needed was to believe in America and I couldn't tell him that. <laughs> I couldn't. Yeah, what? Sorry. Oh, I was 
someone like the minor or the gel wrestler, how do you introduce yourself and explain why you want to talk? I say, I tell him my name and that I'm working on a radio story and I was wondering if I could ask him some questions. And that, that's just really simple. What do I ask him? Um, what are you doing? <laughs> I have a friend, the same friend that was yelling at me up in the tree, he said, you only have one question for everybody and it's how weird are you? <laughs> yeah. But one thing I noticed with that piece and also some of the other things you play is that they're very distinctive scenes where something's going on and it's paced a certain way, often maybe more slowly than we might be used to. Yeah. But then the scenes tend to end abruptly. Yeah. Sort of in the where some people might think this is, it's still in the middle of the scene. Huh. But I think it works. I think you make your point. And I just wonder, um, do you do you always know where where the scene ends and where you've made your point? Is that natural, um, or do you agonize over that? Um, well, you know, uh, when I started, a friend Larry Massett told me, "It's like when you're cutting tape, first thing find the beginning, and then find the ending. In the middle, you can chop out, or you can chop up and make it smaller, depending on the time." So that's really, it really works. You know, if you're cutting an interview or something like that, find the beginning, find the ending. And so I try to, you know, at the beginning, I try to work on where's the ending, how's this going to end. And, but then sometimes it's just too long. And or sometimes I throw them out. I, I, yeah, I spend a lot of time working on stories. Like the West Desert, I spent months working on that probably six months. This one was all winter. It was really, really a cold winter. And I didn't know how to put it together. I couldn't figure it out. So I drove from Salt Lake to Washington, D.C., and, and uh, where Larry Massett lives, and I got him to help me. But really the thing that did it was a friend of his who was staying with him and just graduated from acupuncture school, and she just did acupuncture on me for seven days, and that's how I figured out. <laughs> she told me she, I was the most toxic person I, she'd ever worked on. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about um, how you view the role of the narrator in a radio story. Um, and All right. Well, it goes back to what I was saying before. It's like I just am trying to set up the images so the audience starts engages their imagination. So I put myself in for that reason, um, and I find that it's it works uh, if they can identify with me as a you know I try to write as an average man. Uh, that people can identify with. Oh, I was like, if they, if the listeners think, oh, I don't like that guy, I don't know who he is, I don't know what he's doing, they're not gonna, their imagination's not gonna kick in. But I think this is how it works anyway. Just like when you go to a film, you identify with the characters. If you don't identify with any of the characters in a film, you don't suspend your disbelief. You don't get into it. Um, a friend of mine made a film called Reuben and Ed. Uh, Trent Harris and Salt Lake City, where the two main characters, Reuben and Ed, are enormous failures. 
they're the type of people you don't even want to be close to, you know, in the same vicinity because the gravity for failure is so strong. But it's an amazing film. I thought it was going to be a huge hit, but it, it bombed horribly. One person called it the worst film of the decade, and it was made in 1991. <laughs> 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 and it's because uh, people couldn't identify, they didn't want to identify with Ruben or Ed. Why well, I identified with both of them. But um, so that's why I do it. It's to get people to engage their imaginations. I have to, yeah, I, have, I feel like I have to set it up somehow or else the tape doesn't work. Um, so that, yeah, that's how I do it. Yeah, in the back. How much, how much sort of narrative or concept do you go in with? You know, do you have a particular idea? Like I just heard you say maybe that I needed to figure out about leaving America. I mean, you know, do you have an overarching concept, you know, that you... Well. Uh, yeah, well, when I went out there, I just wanted to get out of town and, because I was in such a bad mood. But um, when I, yeah, when I, I started talking to people, it was like, man, I started realizing like, this is, everywhere I go, there's something violent happening. And it's really a totally organic process in the sense that you go out. Well, that's nice. I don't know. Yeah, that's maybe not quite like that. It's more difficult than... I think sometimes things work and sometimes they don't and you just take the good stuff and throw out the bad stuff but it's it's, it's a lot of work or a lot of time you know I talk to probably 10 times as many people as I until I find 10 people and I use one like that um, and then sometimes it's just, I'm just lucky and sometimes I'm not yeah Um, oh, good. You know, I think a lot of that's this room. Oh, what were you saying? Sorry. I feel like that moved over here, and then another character, or you were pulling me somewhere else. I'm getting a sense of a big prairie. Oh, good. Yeah, that's what I was trying to do. Um, because I can hear space and sound. I can tell if someone's in a room or outside. Um, in the desert, it often sounds like in a studio at NPR because there's nothing. So that's a little difficult sometimes. Crickets help. Um, but yeah, I love that about sound, that you can get, I can get an image of the space from listening to a sound recording. Like that Cowboy Junkies album, the first one they did in the church with one microphone. You know, you can just tell. You can just, I can imagine that church. And, you know, usually we listen to the radio in cars where you can't hear the subtle things like that. And most of the time our speakers at home, you know, clock radio, it's not that good. And then there's noise going on. But now with these iPods, people listen with their the earplugs, right? And the sounds, I don't have one, but I've heard, you know, I've heard them and it's like, pretty good and so I think young people are downloading uh, radio stories and you know having that experience maybe for the first time now where it's before the iPods wasn't that common because you just don't unless you have a really good sound system like this sound system in here is a lot better than the one yesterday there were it was echoing 
in the room yesterday. Um, but what about the mics? Do you have a specific mic? Well, I found, you know, yeah, I have a good mic and like an $800 Shure VP88 stereo. It's an electric, and it runs on a battery, it's switch, switchable pattern. But um, some sound, I sometimes, I don't know what I recorded. That was that one, the, that was the microphone, the dog bit on that last story. Um, that was a Sony, like a VP88. But you can get a good sound recording with a very inexpensive mic, just like you can get a good photograph with an inexpensive digital camera. If the light is good, you don't need a great camera. I don't know whether you guys have noticed that or not, but um, it's the same with sound. If the sound is good, an inexpensive microphone and recorder will do just fine. As long as you get it close to the source, you know. It's a signal to a noise ratio, always. And so you get the microphone close to increase the signal and reduce the noise, things like that. But I, a lot of the stuff I've done, some of my favorite recordings were done with a little $100 microphone and a $150 recorder. Yeah, in the back. Are you panning and using effects in your mix? Panning? Yeah, because it sounded like it would. Yeah, I don't, I, yeah, my system doesn't do that. I think this one's just so much better. I'm hearing things I didn't hear when I mixed it. Sorry. That was a mistake. And also, um, you know, in the days when, you work, when we worked with reel-to-reel tape, um, I think w what it was is that I would transfer the original tape to the reel-to-reel tape at different times, and I would have the lines plugged in differently, the left and the right. And so I'd... I, that's probably what it was in some places, or something like that doing it over and over and over again and plugging and unplugging the wires just in my house, you know, not paying attention. And then not, and then my speakers are so close I wasn't hearing it. So I don't really know what happened there, sorry. It wasn't intentional, yeah. In the back. I wondered what your thoughts were on um, when people are out in the field sometimes, uh, they might, the person they're talking to obviously, but then they also put the microphones to themselves when they ask the question, and you do a lot of that off mic, you, you put yeah. off mic a lot. Yeah. And I wondered also what your thoughts were on um, narrating with the background sound and just narrating in silence for a piece. Uh, but that's different than, are you talking about whether I hold the microphone to myself when I ask a question? Is that the way you started? To people, yeah. Yeah, I didn't used to do that at all. I never would move the microphone. And, uh, it wasn't, most of the time it wasn't a problem because I just cut myself out. And then people started mentioning it and I was like, I don't care if people can hear me. I just wanted to make sure that I can hear the other person. And I, um, so now I, I, I change it more. But in the beginning for years, I just never really did it. I just kept the microphone on them because I didn't think I was important or necessary I just wasn't thinking about it. Now I, I, I'll do it. And the other part was talking over ambience or silence. Yeah, whether you're talking over uh, when, yeah, whether you're talking over silence or whether you're talking, you want to put a background sound in. 
Like uh, you were talking about the guy bleeding on the ground, you know, that was just in silence. There was no car sound or anything like that. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Um, I like using ambience if it works, if I think it works, because it adds, gives the listener more information to create the images. And uh, so I try to use ambience in um, our music, but, uh, and I think sometimes I, I overdo it uh, a little bit, especially in the beginning when I'm starting to mix. It's like, oh, it's too much, it's too loud, it doesn't work. Mm. So, yeah, it's just whatever works. But if I can use ambience, I'll, I'll try to use it. Do, do you think that the silence? Oh, sorry. Do you think that the silence sort of maybe makes it a more of an internal narration? Maybe. With um, like what? What do you mean? Oh, like more, more inside your mind. It's more about you, maybe, when it's silent. Yeah, I'm. Not, I'm trying to get the listener to think about the thing that's outside of me. I, you know, I narrate in the first person a lot but I'm just trying to get the listener to focus on the thing that I'm trying that's outside I don't most of my stories are not really what's going on inside my head or I don't intend them to be that because you know I wanted to make documentaries trying to do documentary work and that's about stuff that's going on out there and you know it can be a documentary can be anything but um, that's what I I thought when I started, anyway. Um, yeah. I'm wondering, and I'm thinking how quite to ask this, your, your response to her before was that a lot of times you don't necessarily have a clear vision of what you're going out to get. You just kind of In the beginning. In, okay. Um, I have an idea. It's not clear. Okay. But I, I'm still thinking how that kind of translates to many of us who, who are doing kind of regular reporting, and if we're talking to an editor or someone, they're not going to like us going out on this fishing yeah. expedition. Well, yeah, I never talk to editors. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, at the show where I wanted to sell it. If I, one th I did a story about chasing antelope. My brother had this idea that humans evolved as endurance predators. And so we ran, tried to run down some pronghorn in Wyoming. And we did it in 86, the show. But we, I think it was 85 when we did. But I remember pitching that to Ann Gudenkoff, I think her name was. And why I was explaining the story to her before I did it, right? Her eyes actually went cross-eyed <laughs> while I was telling her what the story was, you know. And she like stopped breathing, and then I just she just turned around and walked out of the office, and it was her office. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that was a really good story. I mean, it, it turned out to be... They, they later used that story f to, like, in their... Sci you know, this is how to do a science story. But at the time, the science editor at NPR went cross-eyed. I guess it's good after you've been doing this a while, people know your work. And no. No? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I almost never get a commission. Or Ira... Well, Ira understands me. <laughs> He's the only one. <laughs> if I tell Ira a story, you know, he'll, he understands what I'm going for, and he'll say yes or no, but a lot of times they just wouldn't get it. It just seems like when you need to make a living, it seems like a luxury to be able to just take a few months off, drive across country. I know. You can't make a living. No. If you want to make a living, then you can't do it. Yeah. Well, there, there used to be grant money 
for independent producers. Um, this is Corporation for Public Broadcasting, even the NEA used to give grants to individual artists before like 1994, I think, or 91. And then they stopped doing that because of some people who caused some trouble. So uh, if you don't mind me asking how you make a living, especially now that you're in Voices is funding. I have a job at a university teaching. Yeah, they stopped funding hearing voices. It kind of, well, kind of dried up. And not only here, uh, I was talking to Pike. Is Pike here? He's Danish. He's well dried up there too, even in Denmark. So it's a rough time we're going through right now. Yeah. Um, how did you recreate the dialogue in the bar? Like, obviously, you're, that was kind of an emotional thing. So, and you said you weren't recording. So no. did you go back to your car, write down what had happened, or is it sort of theatrical that you... Uh, I think it's pretty close to what happened. But, so you just remember? Just yeah, your brain, that was an easy one to remember. <laughs> People threaten me. I, it seems to... That makes a mark. My, I forget a lot, but... So you didn't go... Did you go and write it down after that? I'm, I, I always have a notebook with me, but what I, I don't remember if I wrote it down or not. But, I, yeah. Usually, you know, I've worked on radio stories and print stories, and I try to write down as much as I can. But um, in the end, the stuff that I use is stuff that I just remember. It's there in the notebook somewhere, but it's like, I just remember it. Yeah. I don't always remember it correctly. I'm not saying that. People, certain people accuse me of that a lot, but yeah. I'm, I'm wondering just a little bit about your process. After you come back from a trip, do you, do you work with the audio or do you transcribe and then write a script? How does that, how does it um, I listen to the tape. I force myself to listen to the tape because it's, so tedious to listen to all the tape. And uh, I often try to start writing first before I listen to the tape. And that's, I, you know, I can't stop myself from doing it, even though I know it's a huge waste of time. Uh, the right order for me anyway is to listen to the tape, cut the tape, keep cutting it until it's down to like a minute, three minutes at the most for someone talking. Find the good sound effects of the siren going by or something. Get all the tape edited and organized into maybe an order first. Because the tape is the stuff of the documentary. It's the, you know, we call it actualities. It's the real thing that the story should be built upon. And until I have that stuff down to where I want it, it's a waste of time to start writing. Because writing's mainly a way to set up the tape, how to introduce the tape, how to go into the tape, and how to come out of the tape. And until you know where the tape begins and ends, you can't do that. But I always, and just to procrastinate listening to the tape, I'll try to write first. Because I have so much time to waste. Yeah. So do you work from transcripts at all, or is it just I never really transcribed anything until I started working for 
Uh, I don't know. Sometimes I transcribe it, but I try not to. Um, you know, when I edit, all things considered, the basic entry job used to be you come in and they give you a reel of tape that's an interview. The host just interviewed someone on the phone. And you have to cut it down from like 15 minutes to three minutes. It's like they never transcribe. They don't have time. So I didn't, I wasn't very good at that. But, you know, it was an amazing mental feat, I thought. Uh, and so I just started by thinking you just got to remember it. And transcribing does help, though. They do, they transcribe everything at, all, at This American Life. And they type really quick there, yeah. Oh, it's over? All right. Okay, well, thank you all for coming. If you want to ask more questions, I'll be around. <laughs>